Hi and welcome to a special episode of our Experiencing Consciousness podcast. We are Roxana Erickson, Catherine Rossi, and I'm Jan Dipa. We are so happy you are here. Okay, so we are now, let me just switch that to this mode. We are now live and to, we are now to, together, for the three of us for the first time. I'm going to introduce you today. So uh, today jo joined us Dr. Uh, Roxana Erickson, who is a daughter of, uh, daughter and one of eight children of Dr. Milton H. Erickson. Um, prolific author of professional papers and books, has a PhD in nursing, very uh, advanced clinical background. She's a clinician and psychotherapist, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. My PhD is not in nursing. I have a PhD, but I am I have a master's degree in nursing. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Sorry for, sorry for that mistake. And we are with K Dr. Katrin Rossi, who you all already know. So happy uh, you're here. Yeah, another incredible person, uh, another prolific author of scientific papers and books, um, clinical psychologist. And Dr. Roxana with Dr. Katrin are together preparing uh the public and publishing a fresh complete volume set of collected works of milton h erickson so i'm thinking you know uh since we are started with, with with the volume set my natural kind of way of thinking i'm thinking about the offers so i'm thinking about milton h erickson and dr ernest rossi uh, two incredible people that actually once started their cooperation somehow, and two very uh, intriguing individuals. So now I have with me two people that actually knew these people firsthand. And so my question would be, I'm going to ask you one question, and first maybe I would like uh, the Dr. Erickson to answer that, and then Dr. Rossi. So who actually is or who actually was Erickson and who was Dr. Rossi and how they actually, in your opinion, met, how that was possible. What's the story behind this great co cooperation that actually resulted in all those books and all these approaches and all these incredible things that actually came out of it? Well, starting with my dad, Milton Erickson, he lived from 1901 to 1980. He was a psychiatrist, and he, in his work, he made it a mission of his life to advance the use of a clinical hypnosis and to bring it into the practice of medicine. He was 
a genius in his own right. He was um, a very hard worker. He was very innovative mm -hmm. in the work that he did. And so he developed a very strong, powerful reputation of his work. Ernest Rossi came along initially as a student, one in a long series of students that wanted to study the works of my father. Um, but in reality, he quickly was recognized as a genius in his own right, as an equal, as a colleague, as one of the people my dad was waiting for to bring the ideas that my father had started with forward in science. And so they were friends, they were colleagues, they were, you know, they were in some ways like father and son. And for me, Ernest was, became a brother as well as a colleague. So it's this multi-generational privileged opportunity to learn it has been phenomenal for me. And Catherine, how is it similar or different for you? Well, what's interesting is that Roxana and I have been friends, I guess, for 30 years. And she said a while ago, oh, you know, we're the Erickson Rossi next generation. And as you experience us and how easily we work together, we have never had an argument and we have delved into countless projects and, uh, you know, and, and difficult things. But there is this curiosity that uh, neither one of us has an ego when it comes to doing these things. It's just like, OK, here's the job. Let's get it done. And so your experience with us is different than the experience of Milton and Ernest, but there's also a similarity. And, um, and what it was for Ernest, when he met Erickson, he said to him, you're where you are now, where I hoped to be at the end of my career. And so the curiosity that Ernest had was huge. And Erickson, he experimented with every single one of his patients. It was always new, it was always different. He didn't repeat things. If he made a script, he used it for that patient that one time. <laughs> he was so original and he just did it. And Ernest came along and worked on identifying what were the principles underneath what Erickson did. So Erickson didn't ordinarily explain himself, but with the gentleness and curiosity and intelligence of Ernest, they would go through cases line by line. Uh, you know, the cases would be recorded and transcribed and they would go through it line by line. And that's what they did for eight years. 
it was it was really beautiful but to understand these two i believe it's to come from the the point of view of what what was it that motivated them in the first place to become interested in hypnosis and how early on was that and for Ernest, it was a fabulous story that started him off. And that was, he was a young boy, I don't know, eight, nine years old, maybe maybe seven. And he turned to his mother and he, he said, Ma, what color are my eyes? And she looked at him. Now, she was a really nice person. People absolutely loved her. He must have caught her at, at a bad time where she was doing too much. And she said, well, they're shit brown. That's what color they are. Horrified, Ernie left the room and he went to the mirror and he carefully looked at his eyes. And within that brown, he saw some flecks of green. And so he decided that every day, particularly when he got up in the morning, and you know how Ernie loved his early morning thoughts. And he would say, Ernest's eyes are green. Ernest's eyes are green. And so years passed and he went out on his first date and his date looked at him and said, oh, Ernest, you have such beautiful green eyes. He could hardly wait to get home, look in the mirror and discover they were. And so for him, it was this, this um, experiment that he did to change the color of his eyes helped him to understand all the rest that he came up with of that yes there is an unconscious underneath that he became to call the creative unconscious and that there are are um steps that you can do to make changes in your life on even on a physical level not just on an emotional and intellectual level and so you can understand a boy like that you know who then becomes a man who then became a Jungian analyst, among other things. And then he meets Erickson. He had all these life experiences behind him. So he was in the position to be able to understand what Erickson was doing and put it into words that others might too. Well, actually, you know, when, when you said that he was a Jungian analyst, that was always a puzzle for me because um, being a Jungian analyst and then meeting Dr. Erickson, who did, at, at least from my perspective, something that is totally different and being able to kind of, you know, uh, change yourself in such a way to be able to integrate that and then combine those things together. That was, that was interesting. Well, it's always. about having an open mind and, um, and that's one of the, that's the name of volume three of the collected works mm -hmm. is opening the mind. And Roxy can speak to what it was about her father. Like, how did he get started in this? Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about, do, do you have that actual one story or was it multiple things that actually started Dr. Well, Erickson? With my dad. So he was raised in a rural community, and we're talking about 1905 through 1919. So we're talking about a very different sort of community that we now have. 
no TV, limited number of books to read, no movies, different ways of communicating. And what was popular in that era was these traveling shows of one sort or another. And what a hypnotist came to his community. And so the family went for entertainment, watched the hypnotist do a performance, a stage performance for entertainment purposes. And my dad was so impressed with this entertainer that he made a commitment to himself at that time that hypnosis is too powerful, too valuable to leave for the entertainers. This belongs in the realm of medicine. And that was just a note that he made for himself. Now, he had the ambition that he was going to be a neurosurgeon. That's what he initially wanted to become. But he was struck with polio as a teenager and had a long rehabilitation from this life-threatening illness. It was in, I can't 19... 19, I think it was. And so he had almost a year's rehabilitation. He couldn't walk. He had to relearn how to maneuver his body and what could be done. Um, and that's when, in many ways, his fascination, his dedication, his commitment to um, to working with hypnosis was, was really integrated in his own thinking. So then after he regained his health and, and entered medical school, he had muscle damage. He knew he couldn't stand and perform surgery anymore. So he switched his emphasis to psychotherapy, to psychiatry. Um, but he still had this background of curiosity, background of knowledge, background of changing himself. And he also had this extraordinary curiosity. So as Catherine said, he never did anything twice the same way. Even when he was a young boy, he would walk to school a different direction every way. He would perform little experiments on his siblings and the other kids of the class. So he had this insatiable curiosity that he brought with him to medical school. And as I said, it brought forward with the study of hypnosis. Extraordinary, isn't it, Jan? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when you when you when you were talking about that, I was like um, projecting in my mind I those 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 stories and kind of creating all those landscapes and stuff. And then I was thinking, you know, that was the beginning of his interest in hypnosis. And then another question of that sort that might came up 
uh, how how actually utilization was created because of when, when i'm looking at the uh, at the photo of ericsson and photo of ericsson and rossi one of the most extraordinary concept that i and the most difficult concept to actually when i for example when i teach people the most difficult part is to teach them the idea of utilization and the way of thinking of utilization you know so I'm thinking to myself, I, many times I was thinking like, what's the origin of that idea? How did he, how did they actually, after a period of time, uh, came to that, to that idea and developed that? Well, the idea of utilization is an underpinning that flows through all of the approaches that were used. And even this concept of Ernie changing the color of his eyes, there's the utilization of some, there was a situation he wasn't comfortable with. He utilized what he knew at the time was to tell himself that it will change and to trust his unconscious mind that it may be possible and he's going to learn one way or the other. But, but one little anecdote I want to share is in my family, um, we, I was one of eight children, um, a very well-educated family. And um, my grandparents, my dad's parents were not educated in upper education, neither were any of his siblings. He had this desire. But the fact that all of us were curious and interested and exploratory and wanted to learn more, we would have family conversations. And one of the conversations was, what do you think about this idea of utilization? Where do you think it came from? What's your thought about it? And we kind of discussed amongst ourselves that it probably came from, and I don't know if I'm really committed to this, but when my dad was born, he was born in a very remote a mining camp in the desert, the high desert of Nevada that was far away from transportation. They had to ride on horseback for a day or more before they even got to the stagecoach. So it was really a remote, isolated place with very few resources. And um, my grandpa was a miner and he mined silver. Um, and grandma, my grandmother would talk about, well, if somebody had a whiskey bottle, you couldn't let that go to waste. So if you were making jam, you'd, you'd take all these whiskey bottles that the other you know, cowboys would throw away and put jam or jelly. And of course, it was really hard to get out, but you used the resources that you had at hand. And that basic concept 
of no matter what you want to do, you look around to the resources that are available. You look around to the, the potential, including your own hope, your own ambition, your own desire, and put it all to work in the direction that you would love to go. Including symptoms. Yes. That utilizing symptoms was one of the geniuses of uh, both uh, Milton and Ernest. I was reviewing, you know, a, a case this morning of a six-year-old boy and his parents brought him in to see Milton because he was sucking his thumb and they wanted him to stop sucking his thumb. And so Milton went into the place of the mind of a six-year-old boy and a six-year-old boy and a 60-year-old man doesn't matter. They do not want to be bullied. And so he approached it from this perspective, but a particularly a six-year-old boy. He established with the parents, I am the doctor. You will not interfere with my treatment with your son. And, then, and when they agreed on that, he took the boy on. And the first thing he said to the boy was, I'm not going to ask you to stop sucking your thumb. I know your parents want you to stop, but I'm not going to ask you to do that. Little boy was shocked and intrigued. And as the treatment went on and the little boy decided to suck his thumb right then and there, and Milton watched for a little bit. And then he said, well, you're just sucking your right thumb. What about your left thumb? I mean, don't you think your left thumb would like to be sucked? And so the little boy started to suck his left thumb. And what Milton knew is to reduce the habit of sucking the thumb, he reduced it by 50% by adding the left thumb. And then after a while, he said, well, what about your right index finger? and so on and went to all of the digits of the hand. And you know, that's a lot of work if you have to suck, you know, two thumbs and eight fingers. And um, so it, but it, it's in some ways it's like, well, yeah, it's logical and yeah, it's confusing. And Milton said, you know, you have to make up your own mind about sucking, you know, your thumb and sucking your, your fingers, but that's really up to you. And so the boy came to his own conclusion that this was way too much work to continue to suck his thumbs, but also that it was his idea to stop and nobody could bully him into that. And of course, which is a lesson that that young boy was gonna take all his life is to not allow bullying. And so to take this symptom and, you know, and think and, and then go into the mind of this person of what you imagine is important, what universally is important, is one of the ways that Milton experimented and Ernest, too. In fact, we wrote a book called The Symptom Path to Enlightenment, where you mm -hmm. follow symptoms. And exactly. Um when looking at Dr. Ernest Rossi's um, approach to utilization, can you develop more on that? 
Well, um, that he stood on the shoulders of Erickson. And um, Ernest was a big believer in the creative unconscious. And he knew that the unconscious mind continues to change and grow. It's not this blank slate that you were born with. So he was always curious about that. And that's what he really enjoyed utilizing probably the most is to help people to enter into a trance and to be able to access those parts. But he would, uh, he would take a word, usually he'd take a word or he'd take a, a concept um, and he would, he would utilize that. He would also utilize um, minimal cues. In, and that's how he often knew how to proceed. But, um, but both, uh, really all of us, you know, we three and, and um, Milton and Ernest, is that we know that we've got these inner resources that are just waiting to be tapped to bring a, a, a further understanding of, of, of better ways to live. And so um, maybe I'm being a little bit too abstract here, but um, that's how it would do it. And with the what what he liked to call the Mary symptom chase is as soon as like if it's it's say for instance you have a, a a pain in your hand, you know, and Ernest would say tune into that very sensitively. This pain in your hand, feel it. Can you make it worse? Ernest was always good at making things worse because he knew if you could make it worse, you could make it better. And then it's like, let's see where it is. Is it going to stay there or is it going to move? And almost, you know, 99% of the time, the symptom would move. And what he would know is the symptom is going to a place to move out because it's not staying stationary. So that was, you know, an example of utilization. So I want to offer another example of utilization that Ernest and you, Catherine, put into um, a good place that I know that the two of you had the habit of waking up in the morning and resting quietly and expressing to each other what dreams you had had the night before. And so this utilizes the naturalistic hypnagogic moments of waking up. It utilizes that space in time where you're strengthening your own abilities to enter into the hypnotic state and to be curious and it you utilizing that time together drew you closer and more loving in your marriage. It got you grounded for beginning the day. And I've never studied Jungian psychotherapy, so I don't know what the meaning is there, but I know what it can do for a relationship. I know what that sort of practice can do for one to enrich and enhance their own ability to enter a hypnotic state. And I know how 
it helps one to feel grounded in beginning a day to have a ritual like that to help you get started. So that's my observations of one of the many, many things that Ernest did to utilize his the resources within and around him. I used that just last night and this morning that um, a woman that I know, she's going to be turning 50 and very healthy, had an unexpected heart attack and mm -hmm. is in ICU. So I was thinking of her as I went to sleep and I had a dream. And in this dream, Ernie was in a hospital bed for a heart condition. And he did have a heart condition, but it was congenital. You know, was he never had a heart attack? And in this dream, he's in this hospital and he's in this hospital bed, but I can see the bed isn't long enough for him. And he's got this really long neck. And so I'm holding his head and I'm realizing I have to, you know, get him back into bed to stretch this bed. And I picked him up and I put him in one position, but I realized, oh, no, this isn't good. So I picked him up and I put him in another position. And so his long neck could be lying in this bed comfortably as I'm holding on to it. And then um, the nurse came, everyone was so happy, and the bed, somehow it was now not a single bed, it was a double bed, and I crawled into the bed, and I put my arms around him, and he was smiling, 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 and the nurse was saying, well, we're getting ready to discharge you, and, um, and then I woke up. Now you can imagine as a as a widow, would I love to hold Ernie's body? I did last night in this dream and it was so happy. And I was able to make a really heartfelt communication to this woman this morning about you know um, a different form of utilization that's not important for me to go into but the night before i didn't have the proper words to say most people just say oh my god oh my god oh my god i wanted to give her something that was going to be helpful and i worked it out in the dream and i woke up uh, with tears of joy as I'm sure you can imagine. So I continue this and it just, I haven't had that many dreams with Ernie in it since he's gone, but this was the best one so far. Yeah, and it's very meaningful. I mean, you know, when I'm listening to it. And it's possible when you think about utilization you don't know what you're going to do with it. I didn't know what I was going to do in the night, if anything, about this um, surprise of this woman with the heart attack. Uh, but apparently my unconscious decided to go to town and have a dream and comfort everybody, including those that are listening now. What a wonderful mm -hmm. thing to be able to lovingly um hold on and have a big 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 long long hug 
and being able to actually use that dream to comfort people is also a utilization of your own inner experience towards mm -hmm. others, right? Mm -hmm. And one one more thing, when when the, Dr. Erickson, when you were referring to to this utilization of the natural natural uh, hypnagogic states, mm -hmm. I, I naturally thought start thinking about the concept that actually Dr. Rossi developed. That's called the basic rest activity cycle, and the <clears throat> and the whole idea of old radiant cycles and the actually being in that framework and looking for the signs of you know people going down or up is isn't that also a utilization of natural um bio uh, uh chemical of natural neurophysiological states to, towards uh, you know indu inducing hypnosis or doing any other kind of therapeutic work so a hundred percent and this draws us to the reality that my father was a maverick and fearless in studying hypnosis his whole life. Every opportunity he got, he would experiment, he would push the boundaries, he would learn a little bit more. And then in his older years, when Ernest came along, he was 70 when he started working with Ernest. So Ernest brought fresh ideas and was able to carry these concepts in more detail and study them in different contexts of time. So that what, um, what my father depended on was being able to recognize the minimal cues of readiness. When is somebody ready to go into a trance? And the patience of waiting and lulling the subject into it, you know, into the moment when they are ready for him to make suggestions or cast forth ideas of various sorts. Ernest and Catherine studied that basic rest activity cycle with much more scientific discipline. And within the collective works, we have the benefit of seeing these older studies that Erickson had um, explored and reviewed and you know waited for the moment and then offered some uh, suggestion that happened to be just right for the patient or the subject at that point in time with the benefit of Ernest as a younger scientist who who had the courage to say well why did you say that? You know, was the word meaningful? Was, you know, what were you seeing? What were you doing? What did you intend? So Ernest had the opportunity to ask for a greater depth of understanding. Because if you start out and just read these historical studies and these historical papers or even the books of the case reports, you know, I can guarantee you, because being a reader myself, 
that you read and you say, well, he didn't give me all the information I need. You know, I don't get it. Why did the patient respond? You know, why did the patient follow through and do what Erickson said? Why did that kid go ahead and suck his other thumb? But with the benefit of having an Ernie and then the two of them going into discussion of why it was significant and what was the meaning behind it, it offers a deeper depth of understanding. And even going past that is that that uh, when I read these cases and when other people read these cases, you get an education in how to think, you know? So it's not like thinking like Erickson or thinking like Rossi. It's thinking the way you think and somehow intermixed with all of this that, that there is no formula. It's different every time for each client in the way that Erickson worked, in the way that Ernest worked. And um, and so I find it a privilege that I'm learning to expand my thinking. And often it's not the first time I read a case. It's that maybe it's the 20th time. If something's interesting me, somehow I'll come back to that. And with the digital versions of the collected works, we're not quite there yet, we're getting close, to be able to have this search function that will go across all of the books. So when you wonder, well, what would I do with amnesia, for instance, or thumb sucking, or you know, whatever it is, there's that, that part of our motivation is to, be able to create something that's so alive to work with. And I think that that is, is really exciting. And uh, all along uh, that like each time we went through these collected works, um, Ernest would add things, he would move things around where he thought they made more sense, he would make more commentary, he'd you know, invite us to make commentary. But when you think about that, it's not just this quaint thing, it's that, that here you are a full professional, but you could learn to think in more expanded ways. And if we do our job right, you're going to stand on the shoulders of Roxy. You're going to stand on the shoulders of me, you know, and, um, and, you know, move forward to bigger and bigger horizons. And so when you want to know Roxy, Catherine, like, how do you have the energy to do this 16 volumes? It's, it's that that's what we want to give. And, and um, that's Ernest stood on Erickson's shoulders. Roxy st stands on her father's shoulders while she's also a complete professional on her own. And Jan, you stand on both of those shoulders of, you know, Erickson and, you know, um, Rossi, you know, who you knew quite well. And um, so that to me is the exciting aspect of it. And also, you know, just this simple kind of way that that we three are. It's just curious, aren't we? And that that's what the relationship was with Ernest and Milton. And if we can 
um, you know, model that of how wonderful it is. There's no competition, you know, there's just curiosity. And, and in that, what anyone can pick up today is there's a genuine joy. And that's one of my largest values. And I want to add that the way I practice is different than the way my dad practiced. Catherine practices different than Ernest does. It's an experiential learning that we have gained. And that, yes, there are some underlying threads and themes, utilization, the basic rest activity cycle, trusting one's unconscious, utilizing the state of mind of hypnosis. So there are some underlying platforms that we stand on, but this is about individual growth. And these works offer the opportunity to experience the inner search, the discovery, the challenge of how can I put this information to practice in the areas where I need it. And that's, that's the joyfulness, the rewards of being able to participate in a project that we are together. So that, that brings me to another question. It, it's going to be a difficult one, maybe. So, you know, <laughs> prepare yourself. I mean, you, 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 you both share something interesting here and you both referred to that. So I feel entitled to ask, ask you more deeply about that. So Dr. Roxana Erickson, you are a daughter of Milton H. Erickson, but a lot of your work is totally different from what he was doing and expands far beyond in many directions. Same for you, Dr. Katrin Ross, you are, uh, um, uh, you know, you, you've got so many of your own work, like into in the yoga and meditation and all, and grief counseling and, and all the other things that you're doing. So my question to both of you is, was that actually an advantage to have the support of someone else that is that was so unique? Or was that a burden to, to some extent? For, for you know when people for example were mostly connecting you with some other things like that that <clears throat> that they were developing and you know so was it good or bad or one of or the on or one and the other well unquestionably there are some burdens of bringing forth the legacy and protecting the collected works, but the privilege of the learning so far exceeds the, you know, the troubles associated. So, so yes, I do consider myself to be something of a, um, having a responsibility to the public. And when I was, you know, when people ask me, I don't always charge, you know, high fees or things like that. And the, my thought is, 
I received a really profound education and I, my responsibility is to share that with others so that there can be a ripple effect. Um, but the way that I'm different from my dad, he, he enjoyed doing things in his own way and putting things together. It was very creative. And he was okay with people walking away with more magical thinking than I'm very comfortable with. I like to explain, well, this worked because you you were ready to make a change. Or, you know, we I'm speaking to you calmly because I want you to be relaxed in my office. Or you may not be relaxed in my office because I'm going to challenge you. So I'm using that cognitive conscious level way more than my dad ever used it. He dove straight into the unconscious experiential and didn't care whether consciously they understood or didn't understand. He did it his way. But he encouraged that each of us should do it our way. And that's part of what being Ericksonian is, is to find your own voice, your own style, what fits for you, what, what promotes and provokes, you know, in your own way. And I will say that Catherine and I are not alike in our style of practice. She <laughs> uses surprise. She uses challenges. She uses things that I'm not really comfortable with. But go ahead, Catherine, take it away. <laughs> well, I would not have gotten together with Ernie if I wasn't already a maverick. I'm the kind, I can't do things the same way. Um, I always have to do it differently. In this respect, um, Erickson, uh, Ernie had said to me early on that Erickson would have really loved me because, you know, because of this maverick way. And because of when I broke my neck and I was in hideous pain, I looked every day for five minutes without pain because if I could experience five minutes without pain, I could experience a lifetime without pain. And I did and I do, I have, I have no pain in my body and uh, that I didn't know a thing about hypnosis. I didn't know a thing about Erickson. When I met Ernest, I didn't know any of his connections with Milton Erickson. That was an extra surprise as we got to know each other. And so the individuality of me was incredibly attractive to Ernie and his individuality was uh, very attractive to me. So we were always excited to have conversations. And even in regards to Ernest's legacy, he said to me, it's in my books. That's where my legacy is. And so I am not asked to continue his legacy. I do through, through um, what I teach, but I don't teach Ernest's work the way that he did it. 
It's the way that I do it. It's the way that that as you evoke, uh, as I help to evoke what's happening in you, that you're experiencing it in that particular way. And so for me, it's so um, ingrained that you know it's 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 pure joy that there there isn't any burden for me and so it's like a little bit unique and uh roxy and i have taught a couple of times to show the difference in how she works and the difference in how i work and it's been really magical and freeing for people that have been in these workshops to find their own voices <laughs> and um and it's uh it's 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 pretty magical and to me another word that describes um uh ernest and milton and all of us here is respect there is this deep respect that we have for the individual and i think that um that becomes so important So it's only good that comes out of the, the, that. For me. And, uh, <laughs> for me too. Know, yeah, and really for Roxy it's too. So I mean, as far as the uh, incredible effort and some of the obstacles we've come across in, um, uh, uh, in our dedication to the collected works. Yes. And then, of course, we're these optimists. I mean, I think we were going to finish all of the digitalization of it, what, three years ago? <laughs> and, you know, and I, I remember I remember you saying that, you know, so um, it, it takes so much longer than what you think to do it right, right you see. And uh, we're doing it right. And so we laugh about that. It's like, oh, yes, we have. You know, we we like put it on the calendar, and this is how it was going to be. And yet, you know, the reality of the situation is that these things happen in their own time, especially when they're done well. Yeah, I mean, I remember once I was working with Dr. Rossi on a project, and I was like all tensed and saying, uh, "I mean, I need to do this, this, and this." And this. I was talking to him, and he said to me, "Yeah, come on, it's all it's it's all about the joy." Only joy. If not for joy, then why bother? And that stayed with me. Um, Doctor uh, Doctor Erickson. Well, I was watching The Wizard of the Desert. That's that's me changing a subject. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was watching The Wizard of the Desert, and I didn't forget you saying something like, "I don't know if I'm gonna quote that correctly," but you said something like. Uh, while referring to Dr. Erickson, you said, "Gosh, sometimes I think I wish he was—he was, was just—he would just be an ordinary and give me a pat on the back and say, have a nice day.' But that really wasn't ordinary in that way. So, that saying that, I just want to ask you. So, because m most of the times we hear how great clinician he was and so on, and I would ask you." how how it was to to be a daughter of milton h erickson how what kind of father he was to you what's your recollection of and your the recollection of him as a father and his relationship to you in that in in that way well i do remember as a child 
thinking, golly, you know, why can't he just say, you know, how's your homework coming along? Good work, you know, like my friend's parents would. Um, the, the, he always, you know, challenged the, you know, us to, oh, is that your best work? You know, he was always in a very subtle way encouraging us to put our whole heart into whatever experience that came before us. But the, I was one of eight children. I had seven brothers and sisters that we could rattle this back and forth off of, you know, off of each other and share our observations and and share our challenges, because all children they have challenges with their parents. But as we have matured. You know, as I've matured and I have a family of my own and the challenges that my children put before me, I really have developed a much deeper appreciation for the manner in which he was motivating each of us and setting guidelines and encouraging us to experience a joyful living every single day of our life that he did it in he used a lot of indirect suggestion there were times when you know i just ask you a question you know does this dress look pretty on me you know something very simple well he wouldn't give a straight answer to that sort of a question it, it would be roundabout and woven, you know, how, how much freedom does it give you? Can you move in it? Do you enjoy wearing it? Is that a color that you like? You know, instead of, instead of saying, yeah, it looks great on you or too short, I'm not particularly fond of it, instead of giving an answer, he would, he would broaden the thinking uh, in so many nebulous directions that you walk out of that, you know, you'd walk out of the encounter thinking, I don't know if it looks good or not. That's why I asked him. But that's a childish, um, that's a childish approach. But now, of course, I deeply, deeply appreciate the way he was nurturing um, me and my siblings and everyone he came in contact with to, you know, to, you know, just have an open mind, enjoy the moment, take in everything around you. So, and that was him, but concurrent with him being who he was. He was showing the greatest of respect for us being who we were and to learn from our own observations, from our own experiences, from our own internal self-reflection. Um, I will say that as a young child, my siblings and I, we didn't realize he was anything special. It took until we reached, you know, more of adulthood 
for us to recognize, oh gosh, he does have an international reputation. <laughs> you know, people have been saying that, but I never believed it. But then eventually we got the we got the word, oh, it actually is true that he was a pioneer in his field, that he has done exceptional work that he is recognized internationally. We had all the information as kids, but somehow we sloughed it off as, oh, well, it's going on elsewhere too, you know. But it's been a growth process. Do you remember the actual time when it actually came to you that, that he is actually recognized or, you know, internationally known for his work? Well, so as I said, yeah, there is eight kids in my family, um, and I'm the seventh of eight, so I have older siblings, and I think kind of sequentially, <laughs> the older ones inform the younger ones. Oh, you know, the, you know, he actually does have an international <laughs> reputation. He has done some really important work. And so it kind of sequentially came down. And um, yes, actually, the the moment that I remember as being if, as it actually striking me, oh, what my older siblings have told me, you know, that he is internationally recognized is true is i had gone to school to school in mexico and um the after it that was my third year of college i went to a local community college and then i had this deep ambition that i was going to learn to speak spanish like a native i never did quite achieve that but i enrolled in school in mexico and quite frankly, even though I'm a good student and learning comes easy to me and academics always came in, I was just crashing out of that program in Mexico. I was failing every class. I could, I was ill-prepared for the challenge. And, you know, it's the first time I was living away from home and I was, you know, distracted by other teenage interests. Um, but I had taken a class in um, abnormal psychology. And the teacher approached me and said, I see your name is Erickson. Are you related to Dr. Erickson? And I explained to him, yeah, yeah, that's my dad. And then, then the teacher said, I don't want to fail you. <laughs> so why don't you do some, get some extra credit by teaching our class about what is hypnosis? And I thought, oh, I can do that. <laughs> And so he gave me a day where I taught the, my classmates about what is hypnosis. I wrote a paper and he gave me, he gave me a passing grade. <laughs> I, walked, I walked out thinking, what happened here? <laughs> you know, I was getting failing grades in my other classes, but, but there was a, 
said an experience there where I realized, oh, it is true. He does have an international reputation and a safety net for me that I hadn't recognized. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's, a cool, that's actually a cool story. <laughs> as, you're, as you're international learning that your father is international and it, and it actually portend towards the future without you realizing it, that you would have an international reputation of your own. Yeah. Yes. That, yes. And I, I also remember when I was teaching because I've worked really hard to develop my own skill set and my own way of teaching hypnosis and my own work with um, with addictions and alcoholism and that I've worked really hard to develop my style, which is different than my dad's style. And I got invited to go to Japan and um, to do a long teaching program. And so before I committed to go, I was really pressuring the fellow who was calling me up and inviting me. And I'm like, why, why are you asking me to come? You know, when, and really my question was, are you only inviting me because my name's Erickson? And they say, am I going, are you inviting me to come? because you prefer that the, a representative of Dr. Erickson, you know, I'm the closest, since he's dead, I'm the closest and next best. And, and so I was really putting a lot of pressure on him. Why are you inviting me? If you read my work, are you interested in my uh, work with addictions and alcoholism? And, stuff? and the guy said, he said, I guess you don't know um, how famous you are in Japan. <laughs> I said, oh, I guess not. <laughs> so I agreed to come and work with this particular organization which focused on alcoholism and addictions and gambling addiction and brought... Together, I taught the combination of hypnosis and work with addictions. And she was brilliant too. <laughs> yeah, I, I can, I, 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 I thought so. Well, maybe, maybe we could develop that into another podcast episode or something to to go deeper into your own ways and understandings of psychotherapeutic process one day. I would like that, and I also want to bring up that Catherine has developed um, ideas and understanding and work with the grieving process. And so that, too, is a direction that Catherine has taken beyond the fundamental base work of Erickson and Rossi. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we never the... seem to run out of words. There's there's always um, avenues to explore. And of course, the same is true with you, Jan, and the, and the work that you do that's so important on deep trance and more, and working on hemispheric understandings at this particular moment in time as the next 
step that you're moving towards in um, intellectual and and um, therapeutic understandings. And I think that it is with with this pure just meeting us today. I think um, that that hopefully the uh, our listeners are tuning into themselves and the best of 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 yourself and what you want to bring forward. And I know because we're scheduled to have another podcast with the three of us. And so it might be a good idea for those people that have some questions or things that they are curious about to let us know. Exactly. Post us those questions under under that pod under that live podcast today on Facebook, or you can send them to me through emails or to Dr. Katrina Rossi. Uh, you can also we'll leave it where on YouTube when it will be published. But but it's gonna go with its own in its own pace. So better just leave the comments under the video that you are watching now or in the future on Facebook or send send the, your questions to either two or three of us dr roxana erickson would you like to give get, get some questions from people if they would like to send them to i you? would be absolutely delighted to give um information and responses to anybody for any sort of a question mm -hmm. Well, um, it may be that I might have a question uh, that came out from uh, from one of the uh, I think one of the uh, what what do you, one one of the member of our community one of the members of our community he uh, he asked I mean he stated he made a statement about the colorblindness of Dr. Erickson because it's said some at some places in the literature that he had a very specific type of colorblindness where he where he would only or primarily distinguish purple from other colors may or may not see it differently than we are and Adam actually wrote that with this violet with this violet color with this color it's untrue the daughters uh, um, uh, discarded that he had a color blindness but traditional one and the cho choice of uh, clothes and trappings violet uh, purple sorry pur purple clothes and trappings uh, were actually an expression of his eccentricism and uh, the uh, expression of his ego so that was what he actually said and you are the daughter that he may or may not refer to so i'm just i just leave it here and see what you would if you would like to say something about that well if there is any implication that someone in the family challenged his color blindness i don't think that's an accurate statement he was color blindness um i mean he was color blind his expression of colorblindness was quite unusual um, in that usually people who have some degree of colorblindness can see, you know, part of the spectrum. Mm 
And so it's, it's really quite unusual to be so limited that only that which is in the purple and the violet tones is distinguishable to, to him. Um, that was a limitation that he acknowledged and accepted throughout his life. And he, because he was fond of purple clothes, he started when, you know, as a professional, people would give him a lavender shirt or a pair of socks or whatever. It used to be quite difficult to find those clothing in that color. It's much more popular in today's world. But when I was in, um, I was in high school and he had a, um, he, he had been ill because with the polio syndrome, he would have episodes of, of really not doing very well. And there was a time that he was, you know, had taken to his bed and wasn't seen, had canceled his patients. And then, it, but he had a few patients that he really didn't want to go too long without seeing. Talked to some of them on the phone. And I remember one day he hauled himself out of bed and, you know, had his pajamas and he saw this patient wearing his pajamas, um, which were lavender, by the way. But, um, but I looked at that and I sewed as a hobby. We never owned a television. And so I would sew in the evenings and I sewed all my own clothes and I thought, this isn't good. I'm going to make him a pair of a of, of respectable suit that's made of nice quality clothing that he can wear and be dressed up and not be on days that he's not feeling that well and not be sitting there in his pajamas. I just thought that it was that was not very respectable. And so I made him his first purple leisure suit of quality material. And then he was head to toe in this suit with a big, you know, bolo tie and, you know, feeling like a million dollars when he put it on. He liked it so much that my sister hired a seamstress and they had, you know, half a dozen of those outfits made. So he, so he took that little gesture of, of me making a outfit that he could be comfortable in because I used a pajama pattern. So it was loose fitting and easy to get on. And yet the fabric said, no, this is daytime apparel. It's not, you know, it's not pajamas. And um, so then he was walking around. I mean, he was still ambulatory at the time, walking around and later in the wheelchair, dressed head to toe in violet outfits when that was not particularly common 
for people to dress in in that style. So yes, he he was comfortable, he was unique, he was challenging the boundaries of what's socially acceptable. And it in its own way, it had kind of its magical appearance to it. But getting back to the colorblindness, no, he was genuinely colorblind to such a severe degree that he could only distinguish purple. And as unusual as that sounds, um, the if if you study colorblindness, there is a rare expression of colorblindness where both the rods and the cones are involved and red and green, the receptors for the for a broader spectrum. So yes, it does happen. I've actually met one other person in my lifetime that has it. But it's rare, but it wasn't fabricated. It was true. <laughs> but it was also... You know, he he had when you have a deficit of some kind, then you make compensation for that. And so his unique uh, laser focused ability to see things mm -hmm. is it's possible that that was his compensation for not being able to see the spectrums of colors. We're really interested. We look outside, we see the color of the sky, the colors of the grass, the colors of the flowers, the trees, the sidewalks, all of these things. But for him with this limited color, he would need to interest himself in other ways visually. And he really was extraordinarily sensitive to minimal cues. He could really see them. And so just like with everything else that he did, you know, and what he taught you, Roxy, and your siblings is you just do the best job you can with what you've got with that utilization. So, so I, I know it's hard for people to appreciate that someone really was colorblind like that, but he really was. And um, fortunately, he was not a shy man, you know, <laughs> so so he would know that people would make a reaction of when everybody else is wearing brown and tan suits, not even black. People didn't wear black during those times unless it was a funeral, right? And so here this guy comes along and, you know, you know he's there. <laughs> so he had quite a presence. What a gift. Yeah, well... <laughs> It is, a, you know, the, the beautiful thing is that, you know, uh, I can I can see, Jan, that you're entranced or within trance. And uh, and that's really a beautiful thing. And what Erickson would do and what Ernest would do when someone was going into their own unique trance, well, Ernest would stand up and dance and then he would go out of the room. <laughs> And he would okay. continue 
on your experience without any more input in the moment. And I certainly suggest that this may be a good time for us to stop for today, knowing we'll be back. Okay. Um, let me check in my mind if I don't have any other intriguing questions. I may, I may have like a dozen more. <laughs> but we may <laughs> I I really do, but we may we may we may postpone that. Uh maybe we could be able to do a few few episodes, who knows, from, from that material. Um okay, so maybe No, I, I, I was, I was, I, I had this idea that maybe I'll ask you both to um, uh, one, one more question, but uh, that may be too long, but I'll do it and just tell me what you think. So my idea was to ask you, Dr. Katrin Rossi, if you could ask anything uh, to uh, any question to Dr. Roxana Erickson, what would that be? And reversed, what would you ask Dr. Eric, uh, Dr. Uh, Rossi, if you could ask her any question, Dr. Erickson? That well, you know, be... you know, Jan, um, Roxy and I have, we're sisters. We had different fathers, but we're sisters. <laughs> And in every sense of the word. And so if I have a question for Roxy, I just ask it right there in the moment. I cannot think of a single thing right now that I would, uh, that I would ask her because of this really close relationship. It, it's the freedom to be in the moment that we share together, that if something comes up, I just spit it out and, and vice versa. It's trusting our own unconscious that we will be understood what our intention, what our, you know, where, where, what we're interested in and the joyfulness of sharing so much appreciation for the world around us. I yeah. think it's going to be fabulous to get back with you next time and really dig into questions and specifics that come up because today has been kind of general in a way, yeah. but it leans on, you know, curiosity, interest, developing ourselves, and just really being in the moment. Exactly. So I'll just say thank you both for being here today with me, with all of us who are watching. Um, and just as usual, I'll say that if anyone has any questions that they forgot to ask today, you can still ask the questions after we finish and we're going to respond to them next time when we're going to be creating a podcast uh, or maybe two or three, who knows uh, how, how, much, uh, how much material we will going to be able to create. Um, and yeah, that's probably everything from me. Do, would you like to say something? 
like some final words or something? I want to say thank you for having us here. Thank you for this opportunity to reach out to the world. And thank you for your supporting our outreach with this collected works. So thank you. And I'd like to give you the website that we have an actual website. It's so easy because you know it's Erickson and Rossi, right? So it's Erickson, then there's a little dash, Rossi.com. And you can learn some more about the collected works and um, uh, that, and we, we try to add to that website whenever we can. So Erickson-Rossi.com. Yeah, I think and we can. So we, I think we can put that in a comment uh, after we finish the the talk. Great, 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 and uh, uh, you know, enjoy your learnings, enjoy the highs, enjoy the lows, because it's what makes you you. Exactly. So be well, be happy, celebrate life. Right. That's my motto. <laughs> exactly. I just stole it from you. <laughs> just borrowed, just borrowed. Okay, so thank you very much. Thank you all uh, that were with us today for having for listening to us and have a great time today and anywhere else you are. This was another episode of our Experiencing Consciousness podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jan. You're the best. Be well, be happy, celebrate life.